Hello and welcome to Stock Talk, a podcast series which brings together livestock specialists, vets and farmers to give you the tools you need to improve your business and embrace the future. Stock Talk is presented by myself, Robert Ramsey, and produced by Kirsten Blackwood as part of the Farm Advisory Service in association with the Scottish Government. So I'm joined today by a voice that many of you all know, famous in the seed seed industry in Scotland is Paddy Jack from DLF Seeds. So good morning to you, Paddy. Uh, Good morning, Robert, and to anyone else who happens to listen. How how are things going on this fine Monday morning? Oh, it's absolutely fine. We tend to be quieter at this time of year because there are less inquiries from farmers or merchants. Um, seed isn't something that's not its not going to go out again until about March. So um, I'm involved with brochures at the moment, Robert. It's not something I'm natural at and uh, I don't like doing it. So uh, I'd much rather be on a farm or talking to somebody about uh, how to improve things, make, 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 make their farm a better, more profitable place to be. Yeah, it's interesting how that that role is my role. You know, it's your role. It's everybody. We're all we're all fighting the same fight. You're working for a commercial company, as as am I. I suppose our output is consultancy. Your output is seed. But actually, the middle ground is we're both doing the same job. So, Paddy, can you tell us a bit about Paddy Jack? Who is Paddy Jack? Where have you come from? Well, Paddy Jack came from Northern Ireland uh, in 1977 to Edinburgh University to do a degree in agriculture, BSc, uh, fully intending to go back and either milk cows on 109 acres uh, back home in Ireland um, or uh, make some money some other way. But the uh, the idea in 1981 of going back to Northern Ireland with all its uh, its, its um, difficulties uh, and uh, no chance of ever getting a holiday ever again in my life made me decide to stay in Northern in, in Scotland. So um, I joined what was then called Scottish Agricultural Industries, SAI, uh, and I worked in the Scottish Borders for 10 years in the in the Kelso area as a salesman. Um, they, they no longer exist. Uh, they were part of ICI, so um, there was a direct correlation with um, what fertilizer was doing and what cereal seeds and what grass seeds. They had plants for everything, really. There were 1,700 people involved. Uh, I then progressed through several other merchant businesses, um, uh, largely buying grain. Grain became a big focus, and I didn't enjoy it. Um, I had five and a half years as a fertilizer manager, and in 2004, I got a chance to move purely into grass seed. I had been a grass seed manager for one of the Scottish companies. Uh, and in 2004, I took the, the step over into a grass breeder who were then called DLF Trifolium, who have HF seeds and various other brands. Uh, so that's 18 years ago, and I've been there ever since. Um, I manage some of the bigger accounts across the whole of the UK, from Caithness to Cornwall, um, and indeed in Northern Ireland as well. So yeah, um, uh, thoroughly enjoy it. Um, I do uh, much less on-farm work than I used to. Um, some of my colleagues do a bit more. I would like to do more. I love it. I'd rather be out in the farm than sitting at a desk uh, working on spreadsheets. Certainly, that was that was my um, conclusion when I saw you down at a, a farm in a Whitenshire. We were I saw you performing. I think I would say in a in a field of a brassica crops and things, a, a few trial plots, and certainly you're performance to farmers was pretty compelling and and went down very well so uh, you're obviously obviously good in front of farmers but i suppose the the coal face the office bit's important to us all as well isn't it so 
It is, Robert. Yeah, we've got to do both. Um, uh, in front of farmers, uh, in front of merchants is really my natural home. Um, I like, let's be honest, if you don't like farmers, if you don't like stock, you shouldn't be doing your job or my job. Uh, and we have to like farmers. Um, they're much, much easier to get your message over to than um, than people from out with our industry. They're a willing ear. And also the better ones, the ones that come to SRUC events, the ones that are looking to make themselves viable in the next 40 years rather than stay alive for the next two years are the ones we need to speak to. And there's lots of things they can do to make their businesses better, but probably initially just more resilient at the moment in, in the volatility that we're all facing yeah and the thing i really enjoy with those farmer type meetings is actually bringing those progressive progressive early adopters with you is actually it's them that lead the next guys so it's it's all about in a meeting how do we lean on the progressive guys to bring the kind of the middle of the road guy with us so um what we're looking to talk about today paddy somewhere i think is a kind of specialist subject of yours and a specialist interest of, of mine is the forage crop outwintering type story so we're looking at cows particularly but certainly beef and sheep systems if we can we're in a strange situation where the economics of the job are pretty dire in, in some cases in the suckler story however if we can control costs we do have a really good farm gate price so there is there are options for some farmers for some farms where if we can cut the cost out these systems um there is hope there's certainly more than hope there's a bright future for many of these systems if we can really drive down these costs and and certainly from from my experience at home and also in dealing with a lot of farmers the the forage crop again it's the it's like the nfu thing the right tree in the right place there's the right crop for the right place as well and many i'm sitting in Ayrshire just now for many parts of Ayrshire, the right crop is grass you know there's a there's limited options as far as forage crops go but for those who can and and maybe we should be pushing the envelope a wee bit as well as how do we get how do we extend that grazing period on more challenging farms? But if we focus down on to start with, the it's interesting to think we all think that outwintering is is new. It's become fashionable again, and strip grazing kale, strip grazing forage crops has in the last five years become a thing. What was it like in the eighties? <laughs> well, maybe before we go there, uh, Robert, I should say what happened at home. There were no sheds for the dairy heifers or or any any beef bred animals. They were all outwintered on on a hill, um, uh, on about a third of a bale of hay uh, each, and and they were just left to get on with it. Um, <laughs> and you know what? Um, other than red water from ticks, they very they very very little went wrong with them, and the the compensatory growth was absolutely and utterly magnificent. My assumption is those heifers wouldn't be calving it too, though. No, you'd be right. No, no, <laughs> you'd be right. So, um, you know, when people had a lot more money and they built sheds and they'd grants to put up sheds and, and uh, could house suckler cows um, and so on, straw probably at a more reasonable value. But as we've moved into the, the squeeze uh, on, on particularly the, the suckler cow situation, um, farmers have had to look at ways to cut costs. And 
the best way in my view to do that is to uh, is to limit the the, um, the the expense of things that you've got so bought in feeds housing costs machinery costs because if you're if you're feeding a cow in a shed you've got straw in there unless she's on slats and you and you've got machinery you, 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 somebody is driving a tractor uh, and very often there's a there's a processed food of some sort so let's assume we're talking of a spring calving cow She's a calf insider. She's no longer milking. There's no milk production. The calf's been spained off her. Um, really, she's uh, exactly the sort of animal that can be done on less. Um, in the period uh, up until mid-January, we have the chance to use um, crops that are uh, that are caught and sown in the second half of the year. So not full season crops. If we're looking at giving these cows or indeed sheep and beef heifers or whatever, something right up until March, we have to look at crops that are sown earlier, full season crops. So first of all, let's look at the crops that are maybe after first cut silage in certain farm situations, but probably on on, on lower ground farms after second cut silage, or if it's a mixed farm after a barley crop. So you're looking at forage rape, you're looking at stubble turnips, you're looking at perhaps some of the, the hybrid brassicas, which are crosses between stubble turnips and kale, or a Chinese cabbage and a kale. There's various different things. They're nearly all brassicas, brassica napas, but there's various new sort of things come through, largely bred in New Zealand. So forage rape, Dear old forage rape, people tend to say, well, that's for feeding lambs, that's for feeding sheep. It isn't. There's plenty of cattle on it, plenty of cows on it. The secret to it, the best thing about forage rape is it is extremely vigorous at establishing. We get very few failures with forage rape. It, um, you know, if, if you spill some in the boot of your car, it will start growing there. If you spill it on a concrete yard or right down the joins in the concrete, you'll see forage rape coming. It has a level of, 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 of establishment vigor beyond any of the other brassicas. Now, it's dry matter yield, um, you know, in a sort of a 100-day period or maybe a 90-day period isn't as big as a kale or a Swedes or something. But it gets away from flea beetle. It doesn't need the input uh, of, of fertilizer. And it does like a good lime status um, and it improves ground dramatically. It's got a tremendous taproot. So if you're trying to improve a bit of ground, forage rape's a great friend as well. You might get three and a half, four tons of dry matter a hectare from forage rape. So it's probably the lowest yielding of the leafy brassicas, but it's also the most vigorous. If we move up the next sort of step up, we've got um, stubble turnips. We've got leafy stubble turnips, which um, tend to be more like a, a rape plant in that they've no bulb. But the biggest amount sold in Scotland by far will be the bulbous stubble turnips. Um, all the varieties we've had around for many, many years. Um, they are a bit higher yielding than forage rape. And because they're a poor rooting plant, they actually suit where lime has just been applied to the surface. If you haven't had a chance to work lime through, so in the first year of bringing in a hill or something like that, I tend to use stubble turnips rather than forage rape uh, because they, they can work off a lower uh, surface applied lime stage, or even, dare I say, granular lime. Um, whereas the forage rape that I'd mentioned a bit earlier, it its root gets down so quickly it can hit an acidic layer. 
Um, so the stubble turnip probably yielding five, five and a half tons of dry matter a hectare. The real secret to success with them, I believe, um, is training the animal on its first break to eat the bulb. If you let them have stub, stubble turnip leaves, which they like, and move on to the next break, they don't get trained to eat the bulb. So if you train them to eat the bulb, Cows and, and, and young cattle actually pull the bulbs out of the ground. Sheep tend to just graze them off. Um, but we've got good top growth of a lot of the stubble turnips used in Scotland, uh, and they're very, very successful. They're probably second most hardy to uh, uh, forage rape for withstanding attack from flea beetle. We've then got the sort of hybrids, um, which are crosses from kale um, and, and, um, and stubble turnips and so on. Good yielding things, folks. Just be careful not to put them in the ground too early. Most of these things probably suit um, um, late June, early July sowing if you can, but you can sow them right up. On the East Coast, we actually sell, sow them up until about the 5th fifth, fifth or so of September um, after spring uh, barley. But if you can get it in after a second cut silage or a winter barley, you know, um, fertilizer, uh, they'd respond, all brassicas respond to fertilizer. You're probably talking of, um, to get them really going, 80 to 100 kilograms of nitrogen or, or a decent application of slurry. Um, and they will last probably to the end of February. You are able to select slightly harder ones that will go, you know, that sort of past um I said end of February, I really should have said mid-February. But because we haven't had a winter since 2010, 2011, people are getting a little bit cocky. They've seen forage rape growing again in, in March. Um, they've seen stubble turnips that seem to have necked up and started growing again. Um, we've got to remember we're going to get a really, really difficult winter at some point. And in those situations, we should maybe plan ahead and have a full season brassica crop like a kale or a swede that we know will take us right to the end of March. Now, if we get a lot of frost in March and April, you know, you get that smell off a swede. Um, it starts to rot. <laughs> Everybody knows what it's like. But what we're seeing is swedes um, um, perhaps sown a little later than their standard time. Standard time for sowing swedes probably would have been, um, to be honest, early May. Um, and once the flea beetles attack them and they've died, you sow them again end of May. And then when they've died again, you sow a, a turnip after that. But because we can't flea beetle treat a swede, um, you know, if there's a lot of oilseed rape or a lot of other brassicas or a lot of hedges around, you can lose the swede. So to me, um, I say, Think about sowing Swedes maybe even into July, early July. So you've got a chance to get some good grazing or you've got a chance to uh, make silage. And then on the poorest field, let's think of putting in a brassica there. Now, in a perfect situation, all these options would only be done on nice free-draining soils. Yeah, Nice pH, because brassicas like a good pH, maybe 6 to 6.2. Uh, you'd have plenty of money to spend on fertilizers, um, and uh, you'd have free-draining soils so the, the, the cows didn't go to their didn't, – didn't sink away in and poach it to, to blazes. Anyway, if that isn't possible, pick the best field that you have. I bypass kale there. Kale is the highest yielding of the leafy brassicas. Um, obviously, all of these brassica plants on, and species can be eaten by all classes of stock. Kale generally sown 
probably in Scotland now in um, May and June. Um, we do get a certain amount of it sown into July. Um, it is uh, somewhere in the region of 9, 10 tonnes of dry matter a hectare, about the same as Swedes, to almost double what a stubble turnip or a rape is, and it will withstand the frost. The, the problem with the, the, alt, with the, the, the February-March utilisation of kale is if we do get snow, you can you can get the kale plant breaking over sometimes, um, or if it's the only thing sticking out above snow, um, all the pigeons in the area will find it and and they'll come and visit you. Um, but it is probably the best of the leafy brass. It is the best of the leafy brassicas for February March utilisation. And whether you have bales along the side or what, um, we need to have some way of low cost making fibre, a hay or a haylage or a silage available, um, brassica intake should probably be limited to 70% of a bovine ration. So you need silage or hay to make up the rest, a nice long uh, fibre source. Um, and also it probably helps some of the, the problems with iodine uh, and other deficiencies that you can get from the glucosinolates that are in brassicas. So stepping out bales along the side or something um, uh, really help in that situation. So those are the main brassica crops. Um, uh, you've got the vigour of the stubble turnip and the forage rape. You've got the lack of vigour in a swede or a kale and the cost of growing them and the need to get them in the ground earlier. They're more more prone to attack from flea beetle, but they are definitely definitely better for February March and better for uh, yield. And what that was fantastic, Paddy. That same a real whistle stop tour through brassicas. You know, it's a um, a huge topic. I think that's condensed into five or ten minutes, really quite nicely. There, the the thing. I certainly would, would reiterate as the, the bale story. So we, you know, I'm in, I'm in grazing a field of kale at the moment and I didn't put bales in it. And my reason for not putting bales in it, I still stand by it. It's a fairly unique field. But actually through the winter, I'm, in, the, in the summer, I didn't want to do it. And then in the winter, I'm now thinking I wish I had. <laughs> so, you know, it's, a, it's an amazing opportunity, I suppose, get all the winter feeding done all the tractor work, all the machinery stuff done in the dust in the summer rather than the get in the getters in the winter. Um, the thing about, I think sometimes we get hung up on the 70-30 split. You know, how do we know if a cow's getting 30% of its dry matter from forage? Actually, if you give it a bale, there is a certain amount of they'll sort themselves out. You know, if there's a bale of forage in front of them at all times, they'll, they'll fairly well... Um, select the ration they need um, but certainly those that have tried it without it's probably like i think we need to we need to think of a brassica as a moist concentrate don't we it's not it's not a silage it's not a forage and it's not it's not really a um it's not particularly good for a rumen without something to stimulate the rumen so a uh, some hair some straw some silage whatever it is the two complement each other and it's, it's certainly well worth the hassle of uh, getting plastic off bales and that that type of type of story. The I suppose that the other two things we didn't talk about there, Paddy, is what about deferred grass and also what about fodder beet? So fodder beets one, we'll go there first. I think fodder beets obviously a known brassica, and it's quite it's becoming quite fashionable again. But what what's your view on fodder beet as an option for 
I suppose, various classes of stock for cows and then for young stock. Yeah, fodder beet has uh, taken off. I, I think in the northeast of Scotland, Robert, um, they uh, where they have a big, you know, Swede competition and so on. They introduced a class for fodder beets, and the number of fodder beets in that competition. I think there was five entries in 2019. I think there was something like um, 14 or 15 entries in 2020. I think there's about 30 entries. I mean, it's it, it's taken off, but of course, these are drier farms. So fodder beet is an expensive crop to grow, but fodder beet is the highest amount of energy you will produce per hectare. It beats all my lovely grasses. It beats barley and wheat. Fodder beet will give you more megajoules of energy per hectare than anything else. Um, but remember, it has to be done well. Uh, what I would say is if you have a wet, wet farm, you probably need to look at other crops and not bother wasting money on fodder beet. If you have a good dry farm, you consider fodder beet on its two ways. There is lifting fodder beet, which is generally how the dairy cow farmers do it. They lift the fodder beet. Or uh, beef and sheep farmers, which is our discussion topic today, they tend to fold uh, the fodder beet. So with lifting fodder beet, just to mention in the passing, they tend to be white fodder beets. They're higher dry matter and they sit further into the ground. So grazing animals can't get at them. They may even have as much as 80% of, of their tuber in the ground. So that's no good for grazing. The big benefit of them is you can lift them, you can store them, you can wash them, and they don't go wrong because higher dry matter, just with a swede or a turnip, the higher the dry matter, the more protected they are against frost. So that produces milk for a black and white cow. When we look at a, a beef situation or a sheep situation, the fodder beet is generally grazed and you want a colored beet and they tend to sit out of the ground. Um, some of them, uh, and I'm going to mention it, it's Monroe, it's a red beet. It is so far out of the ground that you can kick it like a rugby ball. It will come clean out of the ground. Sheep pull them out of the ground. Um, but lots of the lovely orange beets as well, um, they, they're really, really good. Um, they're maybe 60% out of the ground. Big costs are fertilizer, uh, salt, because the potash intake of a fodder beet, but most of all, it's the herbicide, it's weed control. You're either looking at two pre-emergent and one post, or one pre and two post-emergent treatments, because a fodder beet plant is an extremely poor competitor with broadleaf weeds in its early life. Now, once you get past that stage, absolutely grows you know, like a fodder bait. It grows like a mushroom. Um, uh, I have I have one um, friend who I've been growing fodder beet with for 35 years in the Kelso area. Now, it, it, there was potatoes on the farm, so there's irrigation, but they are between 95 and 100 tonnes a hectare of fodder beets every year. Um, they graze from one side, they lift from another. They, you know, it's 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 got many many uses, and, and and indeed, sheep go back over the tops from where it's been lifted. The the tops are lying on the ground. Sheep get turned back onto it. So there's a big range of things you can utilize there. However, it is not for a wet hole um, on a heavy clay soil um, outside Airdrie. I'm sorry, it's not, folks. Um, you know, so um, the costs involved are so big, you've got to be able to win. You need a lot of fertilizer. Seed, you know, could be easily £75 um, an acre as well. So that's the fodder bait. It will feed very, very well. Sorry, Robert. We actually grew at home. So we are just on the Esther Lanitzer border on 
fairly sandy, sand and gravel next door was a sand and gravel quarry. So we've got quite a nice dry soil, but we've got a pretty high rainfall. And a the year we grew fodder wheat, we had a, I think we were 65 inches of rain for the year. So it was you know, it was challenging. And my my conclusion for fodder beat was what an amazing crop to watch growing. You know, what a fantastic achievement. You know, you're, it's a real, that Northeast Swede competition has always been a kind of a, so it's a real man's competition. It's a look at the size of this. This is phenomenal. And I was getting the same. I was saying these fodder beats are amazing. And then when it came to it, we, so we were grazing it with cows, which was probably the wrong class of stock we should probably have been bold enough as put young stock on it because there would be growth in it so what we had was a high yielding crop a, a high stocking rate and a small break every week every day so we actually landed up on wet days we made a dry field quite wet just by having so much stock on such a small area whereas we're used to grazing kale we've been doing that for a long time and actually the kale root structure gives the gives the cattle a bit of a raft. It gives them, you know, it holds them up better. And we're giving them probably double on a fresh weight, you know, on a the size of the break will be at least double actually on a day. So you get through the field quicker. But I I found so the lesson I learned from that was we can grow it, we can make a good job of growing it. But for me, I'd be better growing and I would need to, to compete with it. I would need to focus on growing a really good crop of kale or a really good crop of... Swedes probably have the same problem, but a really good brassica crop for me would suit better than a fodder wheat crop. But that's not to say, you know, there are numerous examples of pe people making a really good job of fodder wheat, particularly even into, you know, into young stock growing store cattle. And it's quite exciting for sheep as well. So that's somewhere we didn't go with it is, you know, pre, pre lambing nutrition. It's as long as you can hold the leaf through the winter, as long as we don't get one of your winters, Paddy, when we get lots of snow and lots of frost, if we can hold the leaf through the winter and train them how to eat it, there shouldn't be much need for a, for a cake bin for the spring. I would put that little caution on, Robert, in that people are now beginning to expect fodder beets to take them through to the end of March. And it's not designed to do that. And we can lose it. I mean, we lose all the leaf quite regularly. So so it won't last as long as a kale. Um, it can do because we've had benign winters, but and it's 11, 12 years since we had a, a, a difficult winter. But we are going to get one, and the fodder beets, if people think they're going to be the February, March, and maybe even early April feed, I have my worries um, because the grazing beets in particular, where the dry matter 16, 17, 15, 16, 17, they will not outwinter to that length of time. The ones, the white beets that have got 18, 19, indeed 20 dry matter will, but they're the very ones that are sitting right down in the ground. So we, we have a, a cross purpose there. So be careful, people who think the fodder beets will every year last them into, in, in, you know, through to that time of the year. The challenge as well is, you know, we're, we're now, you see in the arable world, the green manure stories are very much alive and kicking. And if we've got a crop of rape, cheap established, and something goes badly wrong, I can get my head around that I'm feeding next year's reseed. Absolutely. I can't do that with thousands of pounds flung at fodder beat. You know, it basically has to go well, doesn't it? 
I mean, for, for, forage rape, you know, you would establish a forage rape. And we're going to mention an acre here because it just runs much. You could have a forage rape for a seed cost of eight pounds an acre, you know, and a fertilizer cost of 60 pounds an acre. I, I mean, what the tractor costs, I, I, I don't know. But it's, you know, if you've got slurry on the place, you could have a cost for, you know, maybe a total cost of 20 pounds an acre, 50 pounds a hectare to get a, a, a stubble rape, a, a forage rape away. Um, you needn't bother thinking you're going to do that with a, uh, a beet. But if you've got, I mean, if you're farming um, at St. Boswell's or, you know, or, or, or Kerry Muir, um, I, I would definitely say fodder beets should be looked at. Um, uh, if you've got a situation where you can utilize maybe um, smaller animals, um, or where you can put sheep onto it, or where you can lift some. I mean, um, lifting and putting out um, fodder beets onto grass fields for use, you keep milk on them like nothing else I have ever seen. Forget the cake bin. If you're putting down fodder beets, they will milk. Um, but that's a cost, of course. That's a that's a, an uplift and so on. It's good for those places as well, Paddy, where, where labour is now scarce, you know, and, and lambing trailing round all winter with a snacker feeding sheep is a daily chore and a daily cost the fodder beet thing if you've got lifted fodder beet you can go and dump a week's worth in the field quite confidently and as long as we know those sheep are going to eat it which means we need to get them started on early enough but if you go and buy a load of fodder beet i don't know what that i've not checked what the current price for lifted fodder wheat is and what the you know what the relative feed value is but when it when you take into account labor and the amount of sheep some people are now having to run economically you know it doesn't necessarily have to add up on a pound for pound basis compared to cake if it makes the job easy it's there and, and i think on that one people can be fairly confident that we will keep use milk and keep use going a uh, and and hopefully you know allow that grass to come away elsewhere in the farm robert the the prices i had heard um last year for a beat into south of scotland southwest of scotland was probably about 29 30 pounds uh, this year it's 45 to 50 approximate now I, i'm not a seller of it but that's the sort of relative increase we're expecting but you know i would guess uh uh 17 percent 18 percent uk is probably going to be 380 390 so um you know obviously we've got dry matter considerations to put against that and simplicity of utilization but it may be that a 29 ton load of fodder beet onto the odd farm could be one of the best things to to invest in and that's not growing anything on yourself but it might just be a better utilization deferred grazing uh some some do it with 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 the, obviously with sheep it's it's pretty easy you just um you know um you don't need to put any other forage out to them you just um split up the fields and you know and, and of course the southwest of scotland has for many years you know grazed two and a half three ewes an acre through the winter time which is um you know pretty high uh, high levels of stocking but by moving them around um and as long as you've got that lovely short leafy grass which you know look at the autumn of of 2022 we have some beautiful swords of grass with me's of 11 6 11 8 at the moment um it's fantastic feed for sheep 
with cattle, we tend to have more deferred grazing being used where um, we probably have bale grazing, I suppose, Robert, to be honest, where you've got standing hay um, from from stuff that was closed up earlier on. And that's then been eaten um, through uh, through the particularly the early part of the winter. Um, you know, standing haze ME level will be pretty low, I would guess. But then again, the animal's requirement is probably quite low. Um, it's not something I am involved in a lot myself because I sell seeds. So I've got to say that, um, you know, I'm, I'm not the right person to give the most accurate view of it. Um, it is something I have personal experience of though because we used to do it um but um you know please remember that the me of standing hay will be will be quite low although the leaf underneath it will be nice and fresh nutritious high in protein if it's rotationally done and of course with a year like like this the sun's beaming in on me here um we have the ME we were measuring in November there was, in fact, in some situations, we had 12 ME in grass in November. With that, I think, assuming we are talking to people who are rotationally grazing or have some kind of grazing plan in place, it doesn't, for me, there's deferred grazing where we have the hill, you know, the Giles Hendry type deferred grazing where we don't graze the hill and then we fling the cattle at the hill and rotationally graze the hill for the winter. That's an amazing system, an amazing way of keeping cows, very natural way of keeping cows, great for biodiversity, great for the carbon story. However, we don't all have that hill. But what we do have is if we've got a structured grazing, we've also mostly got grass toppers and we go and tidy things up all the time and, and there's a real need for grass toppers through the summer. Um, but there is also a place for not grazing a paddock, letting it come away, and just using it as the low value stuff for weaning cows, you know, drying off cows, drying off ewes, whatever. Um, so it's really just to think that it doesn't need to be a forage crop to be something that, or it doesn't need to be a brassica strip graze type crop to be something that reduces the winter period. Um, it also depends on the year. You know, we've had a phenomenal grass growing year and a challenging grazing autumn. You know, there's been a a, a lot of rain, certainly in, in my part of the world. Um, so yeah, it's it's horses for courses, really. And I think on all these things, would it be fair to say, Paddy, a, a plan B is quite important? Is you know what do we do if you know worst case scenario we've got three feet of snow or we've got three inches of rain in two days? What is the what is the plan B? Not everyone can afford to have a plan B, but is there you know is that is that fair to say the the plan B is pretty important to make the system work? They they are. You you have to have um, a relatively higher level of management in that you have to be prepared to change what you're doing. Um, you know, in an ideal world, if you're grazing three or four feet and the cows all stand heads in, they dung that way, they eat for three hours, they lie down in it, it's all dry, dung's all behind, there's no spoilage. If we have four weeks and 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 uh, you know of, of continuous rain, um I think the ability to move them onto um a sacrificial area of, of permanent grass or something uh, and feed silage um uh, or or try and let them on for maybe three or four hours and then move them. There has to be some sort of plan B to make sure that we we, we don't have a, a welfare issue. Mm -hmm. So on on that, I'm going to ask a question, which is one, it's almost, it's not a contentious question, but it's a, it's a 
one that's up for debate quite often and it, the question is up the hill or down the hill if you're strip grazing a brassica crop do you go up the way or down the way <laughs> uh, uh, I think we should graze up the hill but that's me um, uh, I, it's certainly not what other people do I know that but I I, I do <laughs> that's exactly I'm, I'm pleased I was hoping no, no, I wasn't hoping we'd have a fight I was expecting we would have a fight there but I would always argue to graze up the hill so the thing the Kiwis are obviously further down this road and have policy-wise now they need to graze down the hill. Legally, they need to graze down the hill from a pollution perspective. So the crop in front of the cattle down the way is always there to catch any runoff or any um, do any pollution issue. But I would argue if we go up the hill, the cattle have always got a dry lie in front of them. So they're all, the crop's always better up the hill than it is down. It's my point, you know, depending on what the crop is and the thing, you know, you said you had such a big crop of fodder bait that they, they had a small area to eat, whereas with kale, you know, they maybe ate 10 metres each of, you know, and if you give them that and they're, you know, they, they all stand and eat for that. As soon as you've moved the hot wire, they eat for the three hours or whatever that, and then they chew the cud and lie down. But they're lying down and dry. Um, and from a welfare point of view, um, for us in the United Kingdom, that to me is a very positive thing. Um, uh, if we were grazing down the hill, um, everything's sliding away. Um, so um, I, I know why the New Zealanders are doing what they're doing. Um, we uh, we have a technical, new technical manager who's a New Zealand grazier, um, had managed his home farm uh, with, with a lot of feeding lambs and cattle. And he would be appalled to at me saying, graze up the hill, but there we go. I, I think, you know, the, the reason they're forced to graze down the hill is because they pushed it too far. You know, the, the invite, we are heavily regulated and it's a, you know, sometimes it's a thorn in our side, but we're heavily regulated and it's meant that we are a good, robust, high animal welfare good environmental credentials industry the free market approach in new zealand although it was great for productivity and great for profitability wasn't particularly good for the wider environment and the waterways and and you can see that really coming now that they're being forced to fence water courses they're being forced to do things you know lots of pressure on them now with that in mind what i don't want people to do is take our advice and graze up the hill right next to a water course with all the runoff from the field going straight in the barn straight down you know we need to be thinking pretty cautiously when it comes to buffer areas and that's not legal buffer buffer areas that's your own practical buffer areas that if something's really steep should it be in a brassica crop at all and if it is, if we're going to go that way, how big a buffer do we need to leave to give anything time to to settle out, to drop out and not cause an environmental issue? Because the two things for me that limit brassica, the, you know, the three things, I suppose, is the farm type we've discussed. Is your farm dry enough as do it? What does it look like as far as stock are concerned? So the stock on it, some days look pretty rough. If it's a wet day and there's, you know the cows are pretty dirty, the sun comes out, an hour later all the dirt's fallen off them and things are looking good so that one's fine we've got a good bit of run back nice story if we make a pig's ear of it when it comes to grazing it from an environmental perspective the regulation story might change and i think we all need to be responsible for what we do how we manage things 
and make sure that what whatever we were doing it doesn't have un, unintended consequences down the line. I would probably say on your second point, Robert, if the field, if your best driest field does happen to be the one that lies into the village, um, or just be be that bit more aware that the dog walkers and so on are going to be looking over every day. And if it has been several wet days in a row, perhaps you ought to be thinking about the um, the uh, the idea of moving. And, and most certainly with lambs and so on, clip bellies before putting them on. Um, we, we we you know we have to make uh, a, make ourselves farm in a way that is still seen as attractive by the general public. We do not want to lose their support, and if they see you know um, thin um, wet cows that are absolutely clarty um, and have been and look to them to be miserable for three or four weeks in a row, you know you could have quite severe um, fallouts between the general public and and the and, and our farming community. Yeah, and and the funny thing is that that wet, dirty cow at a condition score of two and a half, perfect for calving. She's physically fit. She's been active all winter. She's absolutely textbook for calving. On a wet, stinking day, standing behind a hedge doesn't look good. So you know that that public perception piece is really quite important. Um, the other emerging area, Paddy, is the whole the R word, which is again, one that gets some people's backs up. Some people get very excited and some people get very, you know, annoyed about the regenerative word. And I can see the regenerative thing in an arable context. We're trying to grow soils. We're trying to store carbon. We're trying to probably right many of the wrongs of the past. In a livestock setup, regenerative agriculture, you know, what are we trying to regenerate? We're trying to grow soils on farms that have got huge organic matters and you know there's a, there's an interesting discussion there but what i would like to touch on is just where did so regenerative agriculture one of the principle two of the principles are we need ruminant animals to grow soils and we need a living root in the soil at all times now what we've described when we're talking about strip grazing brassica crops is a living root up until the day we eat it, poach it, destroy it, and then move on. So we land up with an open, you know, soil open to the air for three or four months of the year, open to the open to the air, open to rain, no living root. Where do you think we're going? So if we're going to, if we have more of a focus on the regen story, is there a route for regen and? for brassica type out one yes yeah there is and and it actually is like all things in farming there's very little new um we have increased our sales quite dramatically of forage rapes and stubble turnips with italian ryegrass alongside them so you have uh, and i'm talking per acre so apologies again seven kilos of italian ryegrass two kilos of forage rape nine kilos an acre they eat the forage rape off and they've got the grass underneath it helps with keeping them out of the muck um when they've eaten the rape again if they haven't damaged the growing point they can have a second graze of it and right through january february march and april we have uh, a ryegrass growing a living plant with a living deep root um, seven kilos an acre, you think, well, obviously that's about a half sowing rate. Uh, I should say that's about 20 kilos a hectare. Um, Robert, up and down the country, those crops are left for a silage because they look so so really good. <laughs> they shouldn't be. So we have seen the introduction of short-term 
grasses along with brassica crops to help keep a living root and a living plant and also to give us that spring production and there's nothing better than Italian ryegrass for coming out of the ground fast in March. Um, bit of sunlight, soil temperature hitting five, five and a half, off she goes. So it's a nice thing to have. So that's one way. Obviously with um, when we're, we're, we're putting in uh, regenerative agriculture on arable or mixed farms where they're sowing um, radishes and phacelias and things like that, you've got the, the opportunity to graze livestock over those. Um, and even within the ecological focus area, the compulsory part of greening that still uh, is essential in Scotland, ecological focus area, um, radishes are one of the things that are listed uh, along with all the clovers and so on and a radish can be grazed a smart radish in particular is a grazing radish and a grazing radish is one that animals find there's less um, glucosinolates in it so it's less unpalatable um, so we get people using quite rightly um, vetches or clovers or smart radishes or something like that um, and they're complying fully with ecological focus area um, and the ecological focus area in green crops finishes on the 1st of January and you've then got utilization till you do with that field whatever you want from from spring onwards and um, so it could give you in some parts of the world three months of extra growth some some more obviously we've also got the massive interest in um, legume and herb rich um, swords that's coming um, uh, the interest in them is is greater than the reality of what they can produce for you i believe in a grazing situation um, they are quite useful the legumes in particular and i think most of scotland is fully aware that if you give a field a little bit of help in march or april um, before the clover start uh, feeding the companion grasses. So perhaps, um, you know, a boost of, of maybe um, even 60 kilograms of nitrogen early in the season, perhaps even consider ureas because uh, you don't get the same level of leaching. Grazing situations in Scotland, you can probably leave that sward of grass feeding stock right through the season with no further applied nitrogen if you have a decent quantity of white clover in that sward. Decent quantity, what do I mean? As little as maybe 5% if you go out and assess it in March, but that 5% in March will be 30 or 40 or even 50% by July. So legumes like white clover, and then I'll come on to red clover, really can help us reduce the amount of applied nitrogen fertilizers. We need grass in March and April and clovers aren't going to give you grass in March and April. So if you're going to spend some money on fertilizer, spend it early in the season. Um, the, the autumns that we've had lately have all had any amount of grass, but if you were tupping ewes and you had no grass, you may just consider a little more applied nitrogen uh, going into the autumn as well. But decent quantity of clover in a sward, you're fully capable of going right through um, after that first application. On to our other great friend from the legumes um, in Scottish agriculture would be red clover. And um, once again, it cannot be for everyone because it likes uh, a high pH, certainly at least 6.2, probably slightly better than that as well if we can. And it does like relatively free draining soils and we don't have those in abundance, particularly in the, in the western side of the country. 
But red clover in a cutting situation in particular can give you almost as much dry matter yield as a conventional silage mixture. Now, I do use nitrogen in the establishment of the red clover swords. Um, I use as much as 65 kilograms of, of P and K and nitrogen to get red clover off and running. Very often establish it under a nurse crop of maybe 25 or 30 kilograms an acre. That's 60 to, to 75 kilograms a hectare of a spring cereal like a barley just for the first year because the annual crop gives you a bit of a boost in yield. Um, and it can even get a bit of carbohydrate harvested from the cereal component as well. But after that, I apply no nitrogenous fertilizer to red clover silages, not even in the first cut. The red clover is quite capable of doing that on its own. The first cut that you take off it in a year tends to have um, more grasses and less red clovers. So it's a lower protein content, um, slightly higher ME. The second cut, the red clovers do better. So you have a higher proportion of red clover. So you have a higher protein and a lower ME. So if it's in a pit, try and um, um, plan where you need the protein and where you need the ME on the class of stock you're feeding. If it's bales, mark them and keep them separately. Um, and of course, with red clover, if you put a bale of conventional silage at one end of a court and a bale of red clover at the other end of the court and experiment to see where the cattle go, they will go to the red clover. They like the palatability of it. They like what it does for them. Eastern side of the country, you could probably be looking at three cuts of red clover. Um, west side of the country, where you've got more production uh, and so on, it tends to be two cuts with more grazings then. So you have maybe two or three further grazings. Um, you know, lambs going on to an ordinary silage aftermath might be 140 to 180 grams per head per day. Going on to a red clover, I normally see sort of 280, 300 grams per day uh, from, red, from lambs on red clover. Downside is if you have a lot of red clover, um, you might worry about tapping news on it. Um, I don't often see a problem with, 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 with fertility in, in, in bovine animals, but in sheep, um, I think we need to be careful uh, on tapping sheep on it. There are, there are, I would have to say there are plenty, plenty of sheep in Scotland tapped on red clovers where the red clover is only a proportion of it. It's not the whole mix. We don't sow pure red clover swords. We, do, we sow mixtures with, with, with grasses along with them. The reason is that we don't make a good silage of pure red clover. We need grasses which have much higher sugars. If you don't have the high sugar grasses in with the red clovers, you don't get that quick drop in pH. You don't get a good lactic fermentation. And your four and a half, five foot bale is two foot of black muck um, before you know it. So so grasses and clovers together. That's the legumes. On to the others like the ribwort plantains and the chicories. Um, they work well in grazing situations. Um, they don't work so well in a, in, a, in a silage situation, although people do make silage out of them. And I'm thinking of a farmer at Stirling and another one at Fintry who would tell me that they make really good silage off it. Um, it's they don't have the sugars for good, quick fermentation. Same as a red clover. They, they, they just, they, they, you know, they've got plenty of protein in them, but they don't have that quick release of, of sugar to drop the pH quickly and make a lactic fermentation. But they graze particularly well. Chicory likes better freer draining soils with a higher pH. Plantain suits Scotland better. I'll be honest, folks. It does better in a slightly lower pH and it does better in a higher rainfall. 
as far as the sheep's burnet and the sheep's parsley and the yarrow and the sand foin are concerned, um, they are for um, very light soils of good pH. They don't really give us what they should do in Scotland. They give us less than we expect, um, and they tend to be a little bit um, uh, more, there's more talked about them than the reality of what they produce. The chicory and the plantains, brilliant in the first year, quite good in the second year, less so in the third year, spot a plant in the fourth year. Yeah. So if you are wanting a long-term 9-10 year grass sward, perennial ryegrass, white clover, Timothy, if you're on heavy soils. That's good to hear. And, I, you know, it's horses for courses, but my concern with some of the, the regen principles that is the risk of losing a crop or the risk of getting a really poor crop often the result of that is we then need to go back in and do something else that what we've tried to save with that's the land up a the the cost Costing. both financial and in terms of planet is actually a greater than and sometimes the the more conventional approach but i think the the message for beef and sheep production in scotland is give things a go you know give have a go have a stab at it if it works for you doesn't matter if it doesn't work for anybody else and equally if it doesn't work for you you know let's change the plan and do something else and what we do know is ryegrass timothy white clover worked really well for our fathers grandfathers great-grandfathers you know it was the backbone pre- synthetic nitrogen clover was the main white clover was the source of nitrogen in this country and and it it fed us and it did us a good job so that story's not changed we know more about it we've learned more about it um but i think the if we can all collectively do a really good job of grass and white clover we'll all be in a better place and actually the sanfoins another i know i remember you at a meeting, Paddy saying that you have to promote these seeds because they cost all, you know, they cost a lot of money and there's quite a big margin in them. So we we probably need to take a pinch of salt with some of this. As I say, there's horses for courses. Hats off to all of those people that are having a stab at it and making it work. But I think making our own narrative for our own farms is the bit that really that really matters. And and to me, for a farm like mine, if I can grow a brassica crop and give grass a rest through the winter, if I can get stock off it or more stock off it and have a high clover sward through the summer, I'm 90% there. You know, I'm, Absolutely, Robert. there's not that much more I, I can do. Uh, if I want to go for the extra 10%, that's when I need to phone Paddy Jack. And of course, other agronomists and seed salesmen are available, but that's when I would phone Paddy Jack and, and really challenge him with the what the, the remaining 10% of the job actually is. But I think we need to focus on the 91st. Absolutely, Robert. That's what we know works. Um, you know, watching a, a YouTube video in the Cotswolds on how brilliant Sanfoin is isn't going to change the Lanarkshire Ayrshire Borders crop. And no, <laughs> no. It's often quite a, it's quite good to watch that on the couch at night rather than watch a goggle box or whatever else is on the telly. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, Paddy. That's been that's been great really i've got an awful lot out of that i thoroughly enjoyed spending some more time with you as well and what i suppose to close what what would your advice be so if you're a beef and sheep farmer just now that's 
struggling with costs, a bit worried about the future. What's the take home message? What would you say to them to give them? This has to be a positive message, Paddy, I have to say. What's the, what's the message to these guys that are in a tricky position? Robert, there's not going to be any Sitka Spruce or anything like that from me because I don't make a living off it. Um, I genuinely think that the people who can produce and keep cow numbers up and maybe even consider increasing cow numbers are going to be so needed in Scotland. Um, whether you're selling store calves or whether you're taking them on yourself, that's depends on your own situation. But um, reduce your costs. No fancy tractors. Yeah, Feed them yourselves. Don't buy in. Buy seeds and buy fertilizer if you need it. Don't buy cake. Don't buy tractors. Do it at home yourself and do it better. Excellent. Great message. Thanks, Paddy. If you enjoyed listening to Stock Talk, you may enjoy some of our other podcasts, such as Crofting Matters, which is a 12-part monthly show that discusses all things crofting in Scotland, including livestock management. You may also enjoy our new podcast, Agriculture, which tells the stories of some interesting and influential people in the agricultural industry. Just search Crofting Matters or Agriculture wherever you get your podcasts from. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.